0: If you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Scripture reading is going to start at verse 8, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Hear the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Just as we are, uh, have we've heard the word, let's take a moment to each individually invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and then we'll dig into our teaching on Smyrna. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have the confidence to know that you are with us. This is not a question. God, we have confidence. You say, surely I am with you always. And Lord Jesus, you are here with us in this space, but you also are with us when we leave, when we are in our vehicles, when we are walking home, when we are in the places where we live, work, learn, and play, your presence is always with us. God, you promise us life life through you, through Jesus. And so I pray that this morning we would truly believe that and that you would encourage us and strengthen us and empower us in whatever we are facing in these places where we live, work, learn, and play. We thank you for the opportunity to be your kids, to be loved by you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, this summer I had uh, my first opportunity to go backcountry camping. Uh, It did take this long in my life for the first time to go backcountry camping. Uh, it's, It's for those of you that know me, have known me for a long time, you'll this is sort of a note that four years ago I would have never imagined that at this point I'd be sharing a story and a sermon about backcountry camping. But I'm here and I'm now sharing a story about backcountry camping. And some of you maybe don't know the difference is that exists between backcountry versus if you just book yourself at a provincial park. And if you book yourself at a provincial park for sort of more of a car camping style, you book a site, in a very specific site. But when you go and do backcountry camping, you reserve a spot on a lake and then it's first come, first serve to whichever site is on that particular lake. Some lakes, there are very few sites. Some lakes, depending on the size of the lake, there's a lot of sites. And so I was backcountry camping. And this one day, we kind of finished our portage and our canoe uh, a little bit early. And so we arrived on this lake, and it was a large lake. And we had sort of the the, the biggest pick of probably anyone to all of the different sites on the lake. And so I was in a canoe that day with my dad. And then my brother and my father-in-law were in another canoe. And uh, we wanted to find the very best site on the lake. And so we first pulled up to this one site, you know, we got out, started looking around and we said, okay, it's not not so bad. Um, my brother was like, hey, Matt, you and dad go to the site that's over there that we can see. We'll go around the corner and go over there. So then we're like, okay, so we're going to leave this site. What if somebody else comes and takes this site? Well, we're going and getting the next site, but okay, I guess we'll do that. So we'll go check that one out. But then you're like, you've just canoed a lot and you're, you're saying, okay, they're going to canoe over there. So do we meet them in the middle of the lake? Do we yell out? Our voices carry far over the lake? What are we going to do? So then, I go check out that site, looks pretty good. Why don't we stay here? No, now we got to go get them. Okay, so now let's go in the boat and let's go get them. Let's canoe. And then they're like, they've gone further. They've checked out one site, but now they're going to check out another one. And I was ticked. I was like, what are we doing? We're wasting time. We can't live in this constant state of FOMO, the fear of missing out. Now, I I figured, you know, before we got there, that maybe this would be a good thing, right? Like the endless, limitless possibilities, that this is like ultimate freedom, having endless and limitless possibilities. But what I found is that the opportunity for limitless possibilities actually became deeply paralyzing and frustrating. But there is this idea that we can believe, and this idea that is floating around these days, That is, true freedom is, is life without boundary. True freedom is life without constraint. Do whatever you want to do. Do it whenever you want to do it. But is that true freedom? Well, Tim Keller says some helpful things, and this is a helpful quote from him. He says, true freedom is not the absence of constraints, but rather the choice of liberating constraints. We are always bound to. To something. If we begin to consider truthfully what freedom is and what true the true nature of freedom is, we would say that true freedom actually has liberating constraints. I can give you a couple of examples. You know, as, as the idea is becoming more popular that you know you shouldn't, when you get married, you know, simply You can commit to somebody, but you should have the opportunity to experience different aspects of your relationship with other people beyond the confines of that relationship, also called polyamory. And uh, more people are thinking that this is the way that we should actually progress. Now, contrary to what you read about polyamory in the scriptures, none of it always worked out, and that wasn't God's intent. Uh, I had the opportunity this week to be at a funeral, Sarah's grandfather, Jeff Belsfield's dad, and... uh, he passed away 92 years old, been married 68 years. That is beautiful. But that's liberating constraint. And marriage is a great example of that. You can think of competitive sports. You know, imagine if we just said, as you're, you know, I'm a big NFL football fan, NBA fan. Imagine if somebody just said, well, I'd like to play the game this way, so we're going to change all the rules today. It wouldn't work out very well. Or imagine if a fish just said, well, I'm going to go walk around on land today. True freedom has liberating constraints built into it. It's not just endless opportunity because you'll become paralyzed. And we're seeing this within our culture, and we can look and follow that out. Now, what does this have to do with Smyrna? Well, believe it or not, the Christians in Smyrna, the city that they were living, they were considered atheists. And the reason that they were considered atheists is because these early Christians said, we only worship one God. We're not going to worship the plethora of gods that are found in the Roman world. And the Roman in the culture said, you are atheists because you are choosing to only worship one when there are so many that you should worship. And the church there then finds themselves in this scenario and in this situation, lived life experience of saying, how do we live in the midst of a culture That doesn't believe the same things that we do or doesn't believe in this idea that true the true nature of freedom is a life that has liberating constraints and that that is the true nature of freedom and so here we find smyrna and we find jesus words to this church in smyrna About how to continue on now the interesting thing about this church in Smyrna is that they are a persecuted church we'll explore a little bit of why they are a persecuted church but as I shared with us a couple of weeks ago all of the churches that we are studying here in Revelation will all be persecuted to a greater extent as time goes on it's one of the reasons that the apocalypse the revelation of Jesus Christ comes to them But they are a church already in the midst of difficult, insane persecution. Things that we will never likely experience in our lifetime here in Canada. And so my prayer is that we would be encouraged by their witness But then we would learn from Jesus' words to this church. And so what are Jesus' words to this church? Spencer read them for us. We also find them in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Here are the words to this church in the midst of their time of persecution and being considered atheists. Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. You'll see here in each of the churches that the language of the angel to the church begins each of these little statements, encouragements, challenges. And it's not a physical angel. It's the writer's intent to say this is the prevailing spirit that exists within your church. He then directs it to Smyrna. Now, a little bit more details about Smyrna. I have a map on the screen so we can begin to see. Patmos was the island in which John was exiled on, in which he's writing. He receives the revelation of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Ephesus. If you go up, we're now in Smyrna. You can leave this on the screen. It's 35 miles north of Ephesus. Obviously, as you can see, it's on the east shore of the Aegean Sea. Its population during the time of the New Testament was 200,000. Uh, Smyrna is modern-day Izmir, which is in Turkey, and it's actually only one of the seven cities still in existence today. I have a picture of Izmir, a lovely place I would imagine to visit. The harbor uh, within Smyrna has a narrow mouth, meaning that it could be easily closed for protection in the time of war. There was a road that extended from Smyrna, and in exports, Smyrna was second to Ephesus. It was a proud and beautiful city. There was a history there of a destruction, but then a rebuilding and a restoration. And they became then a model city with a stadium, library, and public theater, the largest in Asia. The coins described the city of Smyrna as the first of Asia in beauty and size. Smyrna was the birthplace of Homer, the famous writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. The Acropolis of Mount Pegasus was called the crown or the garland of Smyrna. And historically, Smyrna also sustained a special relationship and an allegiance to Rome and the imperial cult, especially through periods of conflict. And they would often take the side of the Romans. Now, why am I telling us all of this information? Here is what we need to glean from this. Is while Smyrna was culturally savvy, while it was artistic, while it was creative and aesthetically beautiful, it was also a city with a deep allegiance and alignment with its ruling government, a government that despised Christians a government that despised Christians. So it was beautiful. You know, as we said, it's the pride, the first of Asia in beauty and size, yet it was also an extremely difficult place to be Christians. As I said, the Romans and the people would call Christians atheists. But the other issue was that Caesar would hold the titles of Lord and Savior And because the Christians were unwilling to call Caesar Lord and Savior, they were persecuted for it. And when Christians called Jesus Lord and Savior, it was an affront to Caesar's status and his authority, which was demanded. Jesus continues to this church. So he begins with, the angel of the church at Smyrna right. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, as we saw with Ephesus, each salutation to the seven churches, Christ identifies himself by a means of some part of the description of himself that we saw in chapter 1. Here in chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, we read this. When John sees him, I fall at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not! I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the de- keys to death and Hades. Each description of Jesus is given specifically to each of these churches for various things happening within those churches. And what Jesus wants to communicate to this church is I am the living one, I conquered death so you can conquer whatever you are about to face as the risen christ he has the keys to death and hades and he has absolute control and authority of all life and death be encouraged and he's also giving us a clear picture of who he is the revelation continues verse 9 I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So, what is this first word of Jesus Christ to the church? Jesus Christ, firstly, is aware of the church's suffering, he's aware of the pressure that is being brought on the faithful. In an antagonistic culture towards Christians, it would have been difficult for Christians to make a living. They would have been economically destitute. They would not have the opportunity to get whichever job that they wanted because they were Christians. Christians may have also been the victims of mob violence and of looting. And so what is Jesus' word to the church? I know your tribulation because you follow me. I know that you are in poverty, literal poverty, because you follow me. But notice what he puts in brackets, but you are rich. Though materially poor, they are spiritually rich. Which will become a contrast to the Laodicean church that we will see later on, who are economically wealthy, but are spiritually poor. James 2, verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Or has about 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10 describing the Christian as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything? This is our identity as followers of Jesus, that regardless of our circumstances and how we are doing Economically, we are rich because of Christ. He then continues, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In addition to the pressure that these Smyrna Christians would have felt from the Romans, there was also an incredible amount of pressure from the large Jewish population that lived in Smyrna. Jews did not like Christians. One, because Christians worshipped a Galilean peasant who was killed on a cross, who they considered God, which the Jews said was blasphemy. But then secondly, because many Jews were becoming Christians. And so they did not like Christians. And as a result, the Jews, if they found out about people who were Christians, they would say and go to the Romans and say, They're Christians! Kill them! And according to Jesus, the Jews who blasphemed were not real Jews and were a synagogue of Satan. This group, they were therefore the adversary. In other words, regardless of their descent, these Jews had become a synagogue carrying out the activities of God's supreme adversary, who is Satan. So he's encouraging them. I know what is going on. He continues, verse 10a, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. What does Jesus do secondly? Jesus Christ warns them of coming persecution. What? Is it not already bad enough? What do you mean there's going to be more? Reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Continue to pursue me. I am the one. I am the one with the key to death and Hades. I can have, I give you life and also control and authority over death. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, challenges us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Though it is the Romans who carry out the persecution, Jesus wants them to be reminded that it's really the devil who is behind the, the works of testing their faith prison in the ancient world was a holding place for eventual execution. Other times, it was also a place of confinement and of punishment. So Jesus is challenging them, more is going to come. So what does he tell them? What does he leave them with? Verse 10b to 11, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What Jesus Christ does is he encourages them to remain faithful even to death. And he tells them that the reward for their faithfulness is the crown of life. Now, this crown of life was symbolic of the wreath or the garland that was crowned to the victor at the games. Smyrna being a place where the games were quite famous. Some think it was also symbolic of the Acropolis of Mount Pegasus and the circle of colonnaded buildings called the crown of Smyrna. And so what Jesus is saying is the culture around you, they believe that these things are the crown of life and the reward. But what does he say? Not so. I am the one who gives you true life. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We can go to all of the teachings of Jesus about the true nature of life. I came that they might have life and life to the fullest, an abundant life. Luke 17, verse 33, whoever seeks to pervert, preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Or John ten ten: the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it. Abundantly. This is the crown of life. And then Jesus promises that as they remain faithful, as they press through, that they will not be hurt by the second death. This is a rabbinic term referring to the death of the wicked in the next world. And so what Jesus is saying is you will not experience death that death as you remain faithful to me, as you trust the good news of the gospel, and as you live your life in allegiance and obedience to me and push away the serving of all of these different pagan gods and serve and worship me alone. Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. Their existence is difficult. Their persecution is present and will only get worse. Yet their hope that they have is that in the future, they will experience true life and that in the present they can experience abundant life with Christ, regardless of their circumstance. How much can we be challenged and learned from this church? That as much at times as we can feel marginalized or ostracized, we can be encouraged by the word of Jesus to us. 1 Peter 2 verses 20b to 25 says this, But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus calls us, Jesus invites us to nothing that he has not already done and experienced. And he suffered and died for us, and yet remained faithful. And so Jesus invites us to this life. There's a story of a believer in Smyrna by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was actually a person that was taught and mentored by John. John. Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. The destruction of his own body was intended as an assault, and this was common, of the Christian belief in the dignity of the body and then the resurrection of the dead. On the day of his martyrdom, he was recorded as saying the following, and I would simply invite you to consider what he says And how similar it is to what we read here in Revelation. He, Polycarp, being someone who would have received this letter from John. He writes, or said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Read that. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Polycarp, like many Christians before and many afterwards, chose the liberating constraints of the way of Jesus as a means to true freedom. May the same be said of us. Let's pray. Jesus, it is challenging to imagine ourselves in Smyrna. It is challenging to imagine the conditions and circumstances of these churches. And yet, Jesus, we read them here. And we can feel the pressure, Lord Jesus, at times to renounce our faith, to worship in the same way of the ideas that we have in our own head, even Lord Jesus, at times, believing that that we should just live beyond the constraints that you've provided for us, that that is a measure of true freedom. But Lord Jesus, I pray that we would trust you. I pray that we would not compromise. I pray that we would be faithful. And God, that we would be encouraged, Lord Jesus, by this church and by these words, yet also at the same time challenged, Lord God. God, I, I don't know where each person here lives, works, learn, and plays and the, the pressure that they are feeling in those environments. Maybe it's little, maybe it's much. But Lord Jesus, you know, and so I pray that you would encourage them today by your gospel, that you live the life that we could not live and died the death that we should have died, came back to life, securing us a future resurrected life. May that be our hope and encouragement today, Jesus. And may you teach us how to be faithful in our time. We want to trust you. Amen.